0: Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted, voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learned something and enjoy listening. Today I speak to Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Canterbury, Julia Ruckledge. We discuss the role of nutritional psychiatry and her very, very exciting research into vitamin and mineral supplementation on psychiatric conditions. So, welcome Julia. I am very excited to pick your brains today. Thank you so much for giving up your time and joining us on Psych Summaries. Please do start with an introduction to yourself and a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's my pleasure and I think what's really important is that I particularly pay attention to educating young people like yourself who are thinking about what do I do because we've got to change our model. Our current model is not helping enough people. And so the more people that we can educate who are coming through, who are wanting to work in this area, then I'm I'm certainly hopefully doing a good service for the future. So that's why I'm very happy to to take my time out and and speak with someone who's of a younger generation. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I trained in the 1990s. I got a very traditional training that probably still exists um, these days, which is that you're, t- you're trained that medications are the number one form of treating people who have psychiatric disorders, um, followed by psychotherapy or and or in combination. Uh, most other things are not funded by the NHS. I know that psychotherapy has been funded by the NHS, the IAP program. So that's a great initiative, but a lot of people don't actually want to access psychotherapy. And I know that's a big challenge is that people are offered this free counseling and they're not, able, they're not necessarily interested in going down that route. So we always have to have more and more tools in our toolbox, really. It's not one thing pitted against another. It's about being open to the opportunities that can be presented by lots of different options that are out there. When I was doing my PhD with Professor Bonnie Kaplan, who I co-wrote The Better Brain with, she was approached by some families in Southern Alberta, Canada. And they uh, told her about how they were using nutrients, micronutrients, vitamins and minerals to treat some very serious psychiatric conditions in their children and their grandchildren and their family members. And these are things like bipolar disorder and psychosis and depression. And these are things that as a psychologist, you'd go, no way would nutrition be relevant. And that was certainly my training and Bonnie's training was that you can, you can't, there's, we would have discovered this by now that nutrition was relevant to the brain. And, you know, that only these, these drugs that have an effect on the neurotransmitters should be used. But the one thing that's really, really important for someone like you, or for somebody like a psychiatrist these days, or psychologists, and general practitioners, is that we always, always need to be open to new ideas. And so the, the, the worst thing is when people are closed-minded about new ideas. I mean, some ideas out there can be wacky and really have no foundation in science. But hopefully, once you engaged in the science and you read about how important micronutrients are for the brain, you'd kind of go, oh, of course of course we need to make sure our brains are well nourished with these vitamins and minerals because they play such essential roles. So as a scientist, as a as, as somebody who I'm now a professor of psychology, I think it's really important that we're critics we're the critics, critics and conscience of society and that we explore new ideas when they come along. Not that this is a new idea, but it is new in the sense that we haven't engaged in the this idea for many, many decades. So that's what I decided to do was to it just explore it I figured, well, I can run some clinical trials in New Zealand, and I, you know, if I discover that they don't work, then that'll save people a lot of money and, and not have to go and waste money buying these supplements. But if I discover that they do work, then hopefully, at some point in time, which hasn't happened yet, uh, the public will be interested, and ultimately governments should get interested, because it could be a cost saving for them, in terms of trying to address the mental health crisis that we know exists worldwide. And just to tie that together with my own research that I had been involved in, was that my area of research was in ADHD. And I still do that, but within the context of food and micronutrients. But the one thing that struck me very early on my career, was that even when people have the best treatments, not enough people are getting well not enough people are recovering and it we've almost accepted that having a mental illness and being on an antidepressant and continuing to be depressed is is okay and i think well no that's actually not okay if you had a broken leg and someone said well we're going to treat your broken leg but you're still going to have a broken leg i'd hope that people would kind of go well that's not really acceptable but with mental illness, we seem to think that it's okay to continue to be suffering when receiving treatments. And I think we have to say, that's not okay. Let's explore other things that come along. And that's what led me to study to this work. And I've been doing it now for, goodness, far too long.
0: Well, honestly, it's incredible. I'm so glad that nutritional psychiatry has seen more interest in previous years. And yeah. I think I'm correct in assuming that that's what you're talking about when we're talking about mental health and nutrition. And Mm. I wanted to ask, when we think about going to the doctor or seeing a psychiatrist, are psychiatrists trained in this or is this a niche thing? Is this part of the medical model or are we not seeing this in practice yet?
1: Yeah, you're not seeing this in practice yet. Definitely not. There are some few wonderful people who are getting interested in nutritional psychiatry. So there are people who are, are very keen on this, but it does, it's not currently included in the, in the curriculum for medical students. And it's not included in the curriculum for clinical psychologists or other mental health professionals. It's just not there. So the demand for people like myself in terms of time to do that kind of training is massive. And I wish there were more people to share the load and to share what's really kind of an obvious idea, which is that the that nutrition is foundational to our, our health. Having good nutrition is foundational to our good physical and mental health. And so we just need to re- re- rediscover the importance of food. And that's a really, really huge issue to tackle, though. And I'm certainly happy to go into that.
0: Well, it's just frustrating, isn't it? That the research seems to be there, but then in practice, it's not reflecting. It's just, it, it, yeah. it's always kind of lagging behind. I did want to ask about the actual methods you've used.
1: Sure. So um, the only way that you're going to be able to try to have any op- opportunity for convincing people to think about this as being relevant to our health is that you have to do randomized control trials. I'm not a big fan of them. I've run many, many randomized control trials now. They have limitations, but they do allow you to be able to compare the nutrients in pill form to a placebo in pill form that are blinded to everybody who's administering it, blinded to the participants. No one knows what they're taking, blinded when we analyze the data. So it's a really robust and important type of design. And that allows you to control for everything. That allows you to control for you know, exercise, because it's going to be randomized between the two groups that they're going to, you know, be exercising similarly in the two groups. So you can't ever argue on that, on that front that, oh, it must be that one one group, the group that received the minerals and vitamins, well, their diet must have been worse, or they were more deficient because that gets sorted out in the randomization. Now, it all, you know, some people might say, well, how do you know it got properly randomized? Well, then you look at those variables, you look at their diet, you look at things like their amount of exercise that they've been doing. And you measure that before they start. And, and you can measure that when they finish. And you can say, well, there was no change there. And the groups were, were similar across those in those variables. So that's why you look at gender distribution, and you look at, age distribution, make sure that that's all being appropriately randomized. If it hasn't been, you control for that. So you can't argue that there's some other variable that better explains the results than the fact that one group was taking the minerals and vitamins and the other group wasn't. So I'm really confident in our results, but one study, though, is not enough. So you do need replication. And so th- there's replication of this idea. And I'm, I'm not here to, I, I don't sell supplements. I don't make money off of supplements. And that's really, really clear in the book, is that, and it's hard for people to believe this. And the, you know, I've had, there was a book review on Amazon where someone said, oh, they're clearly in the, you know, the pocket of the, of the supplement industry. And I can't do anything about this. And it makes me really grumpy when that happens. But it's like, well, if you read the book, you would have seen that we said that we didn't. So you're suggesting that we lied about it. And it's that's that's really, you know, kind of, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to you as a scientist is that people think you've made up your data or that you've lied about your funding sources. I've had my funding sources pulled through the coals. I've had it investigated so many times because people cannot believe. That I don't get money from the supplement industry. And I've always been exonerated by people who, if you know, accuse me of this, my university provides all the financial records of where my money comes from. We don't get money from the supplement industry. So but that's really important for people to know. And that's important because, you know, we, it's it's funny, though, it's ironic, because we trust the pharmaceutical industry, who are they? they support. Ah, uh, the the drug trials, like so, all the trials that have been done on antidepressants have been su- supported by the pharmaceutical industry, and yet we trust them. And in fact, we've got lots of good evidence as to why we shouldn't be trusting them. But that's probably not for your podcast. Is take me? I could spend a, several hours on on just talking about that issue. You know, they didn't. They don't publish negative trials, and they they don't register their trials properly, or they retrospectively change their primary outcome measures. There's a whole hope, host of corruption that's gone on that we really need to clean up. So, anyway, I find it ironic that I'm accused of that. So those are the types of trials that I've done. Are these randomized control trials? They're typically fairly short. Uh, eight to 12 weeks. But we also follow them up long term. And that's that is more challenging because people move and you know, all kinds of things happen to in their people's lives. But we have followed up every for every trial at least to one year. And so then and the opportunity that we get from following them up is to say, okay, when people decide to stay on the nutrients, what happens to them? For people who decide to switch to medications, what happens to them? What happens to people who stop altogether the nutrients? Do they regress back to how they were before? So we have, I can provide a lot of rich data based on those longitudinal studies. So I, I guess the first thing that I can say is the, the thing that I know the most about is ADHD. And that's because we've completed two big randomized control trials on ADHD. And there's a third one that is so close. I, I, it's so close to being published. It's not out. So I can't talk about it. And it's not mine. But I'm, you know, it's at least it's a third replication that's happening out there. And so in those studies, what I can say is that, yes, there are some benefits of the nutrients over placebo, not for everything. And we don't eliminate the, you know, the energy and the vitality of these individuals who have ADHD. But what we seem to do is make their lives a lot better in terms of their overall functioning. They're, they're happier. They're, they are happier within themselves, their sleep gets better. Um, they're, they're less emotional, which is such a big issue with kids who have ADHD. They're less aggressive, we see aggression going down more in the micronutrients group than the placebo. These are all although they're not ADHD symptoms, they are is often co occurring. And they are more debilitating to the parents than the problems with hyperactivity. If your child is just hyperactive and impulsive or, or just struggling with concentration, yes, those other things that are challenging, but you add on emotional dysregulation and aggression and temper tantrums and all of that, that's the stuff that really can be problematic for parents in terms of parenting those children. So the fact that we have the best opportunity for change in those other areas, yes, we see concentration get better, But those other things are really important too. So, but it does, it's slow. It's not always an immediate change. Um, And it's really that long-term data that's told us that when you stay on them for long-term, most of the kids who are on nutrients are in remission in their ADHD symptoms, and they're just happier within themselves. And that's, and it's certainly significantly higher number are in remission on macronutrients in the long-term relative to medication. And I say that really importantly, because in the short term, you can't get something better than a stimulant if you want to see somebody, you know, appear to be concentrating better, or to be less hyperactive and impulsive in a four to five hour span. Micronutrients don't work that quickly. um, And stimulants do. So, you know, parents have to make that decision. What do I want? Do I want my child to be concentrating at school, but I'm going to have to deal with their rebound when they come home? Or do I want to try another approach of really thinking about nourishing that child's brain so that over a longer period of time, I can see benefit? Just to also elaborate a little bit on the scientific methodology. And I focused on the randomized control trials. But we've also done a lot of case studies, reversal designs on off, on off. We've done open label trials. We've done Comparisons to other treatments, and we doesn't mean just my lab. Now, internationally, these types of studies have been done. So we have a lot of different experimental design that really are robustly should convince anybody who looked was bothered to look at this research to say we've got multiple different designs. We've got giving the treatment over time, suggesting the causality link. We have a good rationale as to why we should go into use micronutrients as a treatment. And I'm certainly happy to talk about that. So we have a lot of, you know, these things are, are what we call the Bradford criteria. They are the criteria that allows us to really confidently say that a treatment is, is having a causal effect on, on symptoms.
0: Therapy might work for someone, medication might work for another, nutrition might be a really important thing. So we need to look at it from more of a holistic way. And I think the medical model often lacks that. But I did really want to ask what minerals are being used in these studies? Mm. And also, can we, if we take it upon ourselves,
1: supplement
0: the way that you did in these trials?
1: Yeah, so you open up a can of worms. (laughs) So uh, I'll do my best to try to address this very complex issue. So um what we know, I mean, just to go back to basics is that we if you look at the periodic table, which is where you've got your minerals listed, things like zinc and phosphorus and magnesium and molybdenum and iodine and selenium, et cetera, there's some of them, and there's more, because it's you know you you're familiar with the periodic table. So about about 15 of them have been listed as essential. And that's essential, meaning we need them for our health. If we don't have them, you end up with deficiencies that in the end will probably kill you. So there's about 15 that have been identified. And there's about 15 vitamins that have been identified. And, and these are, you know, this is stuff that's changing in the science behind this and what's important from plants. But that's about where we're at is that there's about 30 vitamins and minerals that we need for, for life, essential for life. And we cannot make them uh, with a few exceptions. We can't make minerals. Minerals only, they come from our our soil. They're in your soil and you've got your plants. Your plants are going to take the minerals up from the soil, um, up and through the roots, into the plant. And then the plant uses those minerals to make vitamins you then eat the plant, or you eat an animal that's eaten the plant. And then you get access to these minerals and vitamins and different plants have different ratios of these different nutrients. And some of them are going to be, uh, you know, higher in certain nutrients than than others. Okay, but, but overall, we can, we know that if we eat a variety of plants, or and or with animals who eat the plants, then we should get our 15 or 30 essential vitamins, and minerals that way. So then, you you know you think okay, well, should I I should be able to get that out of my diet? So then, the can of worms is that our diet has changed the most dramatically in the last hundred years than it has ever in our entire life as you know if you know time span for evolution of the hum of humans. So, we now eat foods that are not foods. We eat foods that are called ultra processed foods, and they are absolutely detrimental detrimental to our health. They're just as a you know just as a really clear message to your listeners there isn't a single study that has shown that the Western diet is good for our mental health. And that should be sobering. Wow, really? Western diet has not been good for our mental health. So when you eat ultra processed food, there isn't a study that says, wow, you know, your cognitive function goes up, or I don't know, you're happier, or there's not a single study like that. So that alone should be sufficient information to say, we shouldn't be eating it. And yet we do. And yet governments continue to get funded by food industry. And they're incredibly powerful. They play a huge role in so many of the, you know, the laws, you know, the regulation of food, etc, that it's going to be a really hard thing to change. And the I think the only way we're going to change it is from the grassroots, and get people to stop eating it. And if you stop eating that crap, the foods that are packaged, the foods with lots of, of numbers on the back of them, then maybe they'll just disappear. <laughs> they'll just become extinct. And would that be wonderful? Colas, energy drinks, they have no nutrients in them. There's no minerals and vitamins in them whatsoever. And But yet we've been lulled into thinking that as long as they have an adequate amount of fats, carbs, and proteins, which are your macronutrients, then you're fine. And so if you look at food packages, and I know very well about food packages in the UK, spent a lot of time on this. Over here, we you have a, a traffic light system. So you've got green, amber and red, and it's based on looking at your saturated fats, your sodium, your calories and sugar. And then there's there's one traffic light for nutrient content a cardboard box would get a four-star rating or would get four green lights because it's low in saturated fats, sodium, calories and sugar. But that doesn't mean you have to eat it. And so we should be thinking about that with respect to all of the foods. Just because they've got green lights on what's not in, contained in there doesn't mean it's going to be good for you. And that's the kind of message that needs to get out there to the public is that you're you we've been lulled into thinking, "Oh, it's got, you know, it's got all these green lights." I must be able to eat it. It, It's going to be great for me. But when you look at the mineral and vitamin content of those foods, and I've, again, spent a lot of time looking at that, unless it's fortified, and it might be fortified with a few B vitamins and maybe iron, maybe zinc, and that's your cereals, it's not fortified with the full array of those 30 nutrients. And so you're not going to get a sufficient amount. and And when they are fortified, it still could be quite low. Relative to that recommended dietary allowance (RDA) or uh, daily values or um, whatever's on the back, you know, RDIs—I'm not sure what it is here—they are problematic too. So I'm not even a fan of those. But even if you you're, you're aiming to 100%, I don't think you could hit 100%. I've looked at that, and I don't even think you could hit 100% for your your 30 essential nutrients based on eating an ultra-processed diet. So that it should t- tell everybody we need to eat real food. So if you eat real food, your fruits and vegetables, your nuts, your legumes, your beans, your lentils, your fish, your grass fed meat, and not the corn processed type, but the ones that are in the pastures in you. I've certainly seen since I've been back in the UK, I've seen an awful lot of sheep out there on your pa- green pastures. So they're out there. So you can you can certainly eat grass fed beef and meat over here. So that's that's where I would start for getting those minerals and vitamins. In terms of people thinking they need to supplement, well, the first thing that we say in the book is food first. So the because 50% of the the population is not eating this kind of food anyway. So we know and we know that only less than 20% of the population is meeting their even your minimum of a five fruit and veg. So we can all do a lot better. So I think that's a good place to start because so many people are just not even hitting that. So focusing on real food. Um, in the book, we do talk about how to do that cheaply because uh, you know, oftentimes people say, oh, it's going to be expensive, and so not even bother. And so I, and that's something that I think psychologists can play a big role in is just that motivation around and the education around saying, well, let's let's start small steps around how can we start to increase our intake of the good foods? and decrease our intake of these other foods that are doing nothing good for your brain. Going to the supplements that you asked about, the supplements that are sold in the supermarket, they will probably adequately prevent you from getting scurvy or rickets, those types of nutritional deficiencies, but they were not developed with the brain in mind. They were developed with the heart in mind, your bone health, muscle health, not brain health. And given that the brain is the hungriest organ and consumes 20 to 40% of the nutrients that you eat, you would think you'd want to optimize what the brain needs rather than the rest of your body. And again, that's something that's not taught to us in school. We're not taught about eating food for our brain. We're taught about eating food for our growth. And so I think we need to change the way we speak to children and educating children around why they need to eat these foods, they need to eat it for brain health primarily. And so those RDAs or those daily values are not considering what's good for your brain. And when we look at the research on what's good for your brain, you actually need to be a lot higher than RDA. That frightens some people because we've been brainwashed into thinking that's all we need. And so a lot of people get frightened about the nutrients that we've been studying because we give them above that RDA. But we don't give them in toxic levels. We've got a lot of data on safety. We've we've explored this really substantially. There's research out there that says that you know vitamins kill you. It's propaganda. It really it's it's and it's also based on research that's been done on single nutrients. Single nutrients is not the way to go. It doesn't make any sense biologically to take one single nutrient and think that you can cure a whole bunch of ailments you just can't do it. So it comes from, I mean, it comes from the idea of scurvy. Scurvy was one nutrient vitamin C, but there's very few um, complex diseases that can be treated with one nutrient alone. So give the brain the full array of what it needs. And that's where we've seen the benefits, the, the substantial benefits for psychiatric conditions.
0: So in your research, when you've been working with people with ADHD or anxiety or depression, are you supplementing the exact same thing each time or are there specific nutrients that are associated with those conditions? Yeah,
1: it's always the same. And we've been led to believe that these conditions are all unique, And very different and separate, you know, like depression, like anxiety or ADHD. But when we look, first of all, we've never found a specific uh, cause of, you know, those specific disorders. You know, there's clues, there's ideas, there's, you know, genetics or environment. And I think their brains are susceptible in different ways and express Brain hunger in different ways, you know, nutrient brain hunger, which is what I think it might be the one cause. It's not every, you know, it's not going to be the only cause of, of um psychiatric disorders, but it's a it's it's one I certainly important ideas that I in fact the original name of the book was Hidden Brain Hunger. But we thought, you know, the editor thought it was just too convoluted and too difficult to understand what that was about, but that's exactly what we study, hidden brain hunger that our brains are not getting what they need, but a hunger that's different from calories. It's, you know, it's a hunger for nutrients. So in our studies, we give the same nutrients. Now, whether or not at the, you know, if we, over time, this may get refined, that maybe there are some nutrients that need to be in higher levels for certain conditions. And that's very possible because not everyone gets well in our studies. It's not, we haven't, we don't cure everybody. We don't treat everybody and that they don't all benefit. There's this group, about 20% of people who who seem to show no benefit whatsoever, no change in their symptoms. We very rarely make people worse. But there, there is this, this group of people who show but no change. There's about 30% who show some benefit, but not, they're still quite symptomatic. But then I'd say it's about 50% of people who do seem to show some really substantial gains, like noticeable, their quality of life is definitely better. So that's our, our our figures, and that seems to be replicated across all the studies that I've been involved in. Maybe over time, we can refine that, but what we do is the same nutrients, and that different people just show vulnerability differently. And so we see the benefits though, across the range, as I was describing before about ADHD, is that their sleep gets better, they're less moody, they're less dysregulated. We see those same things happen with people who are struggling with anxiety or people who are struggling with low mood, is that we see these benefits in different areas. So it's not specific to a disorder. And I think that's not surprising when we think about the disorders as not really being unique.
0: Yeah, no. And also, I guess, you know, how you were talking about the lack of response in certain people. I mean, the human body is really complex, isn't it? Right. So it's, if some people have, let's say an autoimmune condition, and they can't absorb these nutrients, maybe it's Mm. not even the fact that they, aren't responding to the nutrients. Maybe their body
1: just isn't absorbing it. And Hannah, you raise a really important issue there, which is gut health and absorbing nutrients. And so if people's gut is inflamed, then it's not going to be able to access the nutrients that we are eating. And so maybe that's when you need more. You know, we have genetic differences that can contribute to why some people may need more nutrients than what they can get out of their food. So we talk a lot about that in the book about different pre-existing individual differences that can increase the chances that you need more nutrients. We talk a lot about stress in the book, which is going to be really relevant to the current COVID environment. And again, goodness, having been in the UK, I have just such a huge sympathy for what's been happening here compared to New Zealand, where you know our, our situation with respect to COVID is very, very different. I mean, I didn't realize how much it affects every single minute of your day here and it's been a huge eye-opener for me to to spend these last couple of weeks here to better understand it's it's you know going into a shop should I go into a shop am I going to get you know it's it's probably on your mind I'm guessing most of the time is is about this this virus so that is just going to deplete you It's going to be constantly depleting you because you're in this fight-flight mode all the time. You're just on this heightened anxiety level all the time. And one thing that we know about the biology behind the fight-flight response is that it's a really nutrient-hungry system. And so in the book, we talk about the fight-flight response. We connect that with what we call the triage theory or the triage idea, which is that when you're under that kind of level of stress, your body is going to divert all the nutrients to make sure that there's survival. And that's important, right? Uh, but it's at the expense of more long term functions like your regulation of your sleep or regulation of anxiety or your regulation of your mood, those are going to get compromised Um, because of the diversion of the resources, because we've got finite resources, finite nutrient resources. So they end up going to the fight flight response. So I've certainly been applying that here around making sure that I'm well nourished, because I have felt certainly felt a lot more stressed being in this environment. And I and I certainly find that that's paid off is just increasing your intake of nutrients.
0: So your recommendation is the Mediterranean diet, lots of good Mm -hmm. oils and fish and Mm -hmm. Uh, grass-fed meat and lots of plant-based foods. So, yeah. if that's the the standard for everybody, do we then go to supplementation if you are still struggling on that diet? And yeah. is there a way of knowing that we aren't absorbing our food? I
1: think your body is is going to tell you. You know, if you're you know feeling foggy and low energy, I mean, they're not specific to any psychiatric. You if you went to see a psychiatrist, they probably they may not say you have a specific disorder, but you're just not feeling right. You're not able to do you know, you've got that unable to get going and just slow and your sleep is poor and you're never feeling rested. And your concentration is affected. And so that's that maybe those are the clues to say, Okay, let's try the diet. And the Mediterranean diet is the one that's got the most research for it, which is why in the book we talk about the Mediterranean diet. It's got the most epidemiological research. It's also got the randomized controlled trials that have been done in Australia that have randomized people to the Mediterranean diet versus social support and showing greater benefits of eating those types of foods. So that would be the place to start. And if you're still not feeling well, and you're going to know when you don't feel well, I think we all can have that, you know, just... feel right, then that might be the time to then try the supplements. And then if you are going to go down the supplement route, you know, as I said earlier, I, I'm not here to sell supplements. I, I am here to encourage people to either buy the book or get it out of the library. I don't mind where I borrow it from a friend, but read the book. In the book, we do talk about the supplements that have been researched. And so I would say you need to start, I would start there. Uh, the ones that we have studied are available in the UK there's a UK distributor so they are they they're not cheap that's going to be that's a problem i mean that's a challenge but they are available in the united kingdom to purchase if people are interested in going down that route and i know a lot of people do buy them in the uk and in europe and so if someone buys the book can they do
0: this safely i.e. we talked briefly about the toxicity of certain vitamins, some aren't water soluble, etc. Do yeah. we need to do this with a clinician or can we get safe advice from the book? Should we
1: check with the doctor anyway? That's a great question. So we talk a lot about the warnings in the book and some be- really important ones are if you're on medications, because that would be the number one, that is the number one challenge of the research that we've been involved in is the issue of medications. And medications specifically, I'm talking about psychiatric medications, antidepressants, anxiolytics, stimulants, etc. So the psychiatrists who have been involved in this work for over two decades have noted in their practice when they use the nutrients, and they're often obviously working with people who are on medications, that the medications, the the effects of the medications get potentiated. And that means that you end up with greater side effects and you probably end up feeling worse. People then attribute it to the micronutrients. It's not the micronutrients because we don't see that when we use them with unmedicated people, which is all I do in terms of our clinical trials, they're all unmedicated. But so this only happens to people who are medicated. And what we think is going on is that the um, antidepressants, for example, we know they affect the serotonergic system. Well, so do micronutrients in a different way. Micronutrients are your building blocks of your serotonin. They're required as your cofactors to help enzymatic reactions occur. So if you don't have them, then you can end up with your, your you know, all neurotransmitters being out of whack. So when you have an antidepressant that we know affects the serotonergic system, you add in micronutrients, you can see that you can end up then with a double whammy effect on your serotonin. That's just a simple way to think about it. It's probably more complex than that. There's probably issues to do with the liver and how the liver gets rid of the drugs and metabolizes the drugs that may also get affected by the additional micronutrients. We're trying to explore and better understand what's happening here. But the number one thing is that it's being observed time and time again is that when you're medicated and you add micronutrients in, you must decrease your medication. So that's the kind of thing I would say, well, I wouldn't do that alone. I would talk to the prescriber. The challenges is that the prescribers don't know about the effects of micronutrients and they will also not believe it. So they'll go, oh, there's no way that micronutrients could affect these drugs that I'm prescribing. Yeah, go ahead. Take those micronutrients. As somebody might say, but this book says it's dangerous. Oh, don't believe that. you know. And so I've heard that story time and time again is that the psychiatrists are not educated and I, I don't want to be disparaging of them. There's no point. I just want them to be educated and have an open mind and curious. That's I just ask for curiosity and to be interested and intrigued because at the end of the day, psychiatrists want their patients to be better. How many psychiatrists out there have patients who aren't better? They should want better for their. And if this can provide greater relief for their patients, then they should be interested, intrigued and get educated on this topic. So They've, you know, they come from a medical model, so I'm sympathetic to where they're coming from. But really, we're now at a time where they can no longer ignore the science, they can no longer ignore the studies that have been done, and they really should not be ignoring the biological plausibility of this approach. There's going to be a point where I'm going to say, well, actually, that's malpractice. If you're not going to get educated and understand what vitamins and minerals do to the brain, then...
0: You can sympathize from both sides, can't you? Because nutritional psychiatry is new, probably, in their eyes. So they're like, we're waiting exactly. for more research. But actually,
1: mm.
0: the research that's there is very telling. So do we really yeah. need to wait? And like you say, these are people's lives. It's like, if people aren't yep. improving, why would you not at least try? And there will be some that are and will that aren't. However, yeah. it's really important point that you've noted. So if you are on medication... Yep. It might not be something that you supplement with. Of course, you can try and improve your diet, but maybe with supplementation, you do want to consider maybe speaking to a nutritionist or something to ensure... Well,
1: yeah, I don't know if a nutritionist would necessarily be the right person. You really do need to talk to the prescriber because the medication needs to be adjusted. So it's about finding a prescriber who's willing to go that route. Um... And but the companies that that make the products that we've studied, remember, they are just families from the, you know, at the end of the day, they were those families who were just trying to find a better way for their children. They're not out there. To make a profit they are both their nonprofit organizations and so what they've developed is a system where you can contact them and get advice as a psychiatrist as a general practitioner on how to do a cross tapering they are open to educating medical professionals they are incredibly helpful they've got a huge amount of experience in this problem and they've recognized that medical professionals don't have the adequate training so they want to help them they're not you know they do want to make sure it's done safely they don't sell the product without that conversation so if you are you know if you are a customer and you go and want to purchase the nutrients that we've studied anyway they really try to make sure that you take them safely and that you're not taking them alongside quetiapine and sertraline and you know citalopram and prozac without understanding this problem. And so they, they really are trying to do it ethically as opposed to just sell it in the supermarket, which is why you can't buy it in a supermarket.
0: And for those who aren't on psychiatric medication, yep. then it's one, simple. Is there a supplement out there that is as powerful as the one you used in your studies? Probably not.
1: Um, no, I would I mean, we've done different doses. I did a lot of research on stress after Christchurch earthquakes and after a flood and then after a mosque shooting in Christchurch. And so we found that a much lower dose was sufficient to help people with stress. So that would be only maybe between four to six pills a day versus when we're treating ADHD or people who are struggling with serious, dep- like moderate to severe depression, then we're using more like 12 pills a day. And that might sound like a lot to your listeners, but if you think about the minerals as being you need to take some minerals in quite a a large amount then that ends up just being really bulky and that's you know think about a calcium pill and how how big that is and that's just one of those 15 essential nutrients so some of them are mac are macro minerals and so they're they're much bulkier and you need to take more of it things like vitamin
0: a can they be toxic in in too much
1: well, anything can be toxic at any level, right? I mean, at a certain level. So, But at the doses that we've studied them, in combination, the combination is so important, is that, say, for example, if you take zinc without copper, you can cause a copper deficiency. But if you take zinc with copper, there's no problem. So that's what leads to uh, the zinc levels, like an upper limit on your zinc of how much zinc you should take because you're trying to prevent copper deficiency. That doesn't. That's not a problem or an issue if you take it alongside copper. The same thing can happen with a number of other nutrients as well, that, that you can tolerate a much higher dose when taking in combination with other nutrients. They, they work together or synergistically or antagonistically. So that's why I'm less concerned about those issues of toxicity than if you were taking a, a one alone. So there are issues, you know, as I you've identified of taking some nutrients in high doses, but that's not that we've looked at long term safety of the nutrients over, over many, many years, we've followed people who take them in New Zealand, and got blood work done to see if there was anything that we should be concerned about in terms of, you know, liver function or kidney function, or just anything that was a signal that was saying these people are unwell. And there was no obvious thing that was was suggesting, wow, this is dangerous. No, there was nothing there. So I can't guarantee safety. Can't guarantee that when you walk out of your door, you're not going to get hit by a bus.
0: I mean, we all need to take responsibility for our own health. And I think anyone wanting to start on this journey needs to read the book. So please do tell us what the book's called.
1: It's called The Better Brain and it's published by Penguin Random House in the UK. And you can definitely buy it on Amazon. I've seen it there. It's published by myself and Bonnie Kaplan and it's written for the public. It is written with the public in mind. And we have a website for the book, which is www.thebetterbrainbook.com. Dot com. Another thing that I've done is an educational online course. It's called Mental Health and Nutrition, and it's on the edX platform. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's free. So it's a free course. It's currently running, but I think it's just about to stop in terms of rec- uh, enrollments, but it's starting again in August. But it's it's very accessible. Information has been put in a way that's just super easy to understand it. And it's all videos. And so you get 29 videos of, of me talking about all of these different ideas around food and how to how to eat better. And then ultimately, I talk about the supplements as well.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of the incredible work you do. I'm really grateful. And it was so great to meet you and hear all about your research. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you
1: you're very very welcome and now it's in your in your hands (laughs) to now spread the word thank you so much
0: thanks so much for listening to today's podcast i really hope you feel both empowered and inspired by the findings of julia's research in nutritional psychiatry you can follow Julia on Instagram at, at UC mental health and nutrition or alternatively go to her website both of which I will add to the links in this conversation. The research is so exciting and I really cannot wait for this movement to grow. Thank you again to Julia and all those that tuned in to listen. I'll see you next time.